Come to 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning in our study of the life of Elijah who does not appear in this chapter, but the work of the prophets continues and I think this is certainly a message for us here, so we will continue on considering 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning. Lord, we come before you in prayer seeking that you would open your word to our understanding We praise you for the songs of joy and truth that we've been able to sing, for the prayers that have been lifted, for the reading of your word, for the privilege to give and to contemplate together our life before your throne. And we pray now that by the Spirit of God that you will teach us and instruct us in what you would have us to know and how to be convicted by the passage that's before us. And for those who know not Christ, we pray in their behalf that they might see you for who you are. Guide us through this time together, and we will thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Abraham Kuyper served the Netherlands as a Reformed pastor, an author, an educator, a member of parliament, and for four years, the Dutch prime minister. Consider what is... After that long life and career and so many uh, memories that he's left behind, consider what's probably the most memorable statement that Kuiper made. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Indeed, we've just sung of that, haven't we? And I wonder if we grasp the significance of this declaration. Seeing the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every moment of history and every atom of the universe is a crucial determining factor in who we are and who we are becoming. Think of it in terms of sin. Indeed, every sin that we commit, every word of gossip, Attitude of greed, self-centered choice, welcome gaze at an illicit image, every cold dismissal of another person, every display of pride is saying, mine. I will rule this moment. I will control this relationship. I will determine my truth. I will order the future on my terms for my honor, mine. Further, secondly, every failure of faith is a similar denial of the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. The voice of doubt, the voice of distrust, an echo often in our souls, we say something along these lines, He is not here. This is a realm where God is not. This is a circumstance he has abandoned. This relationship, this trial, God is not in this space. We don't articulate it, but it's what drives us. It's what we're really considering and thinking. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we must learn to fight sin by submitting to Christ's lordship over every moment of our lives. And as followers of Jesus, we must learn to fight for faith by refusing to allow that there is some place, some circumstance where God is not ruling sovereignly. 
May God help us calibrate to this reality. That there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now in His kindness to us, the Lord periodically in the course of history reveals His absolute sovereignty over every square inch And he does so in unforgettable ways. And one of those is 1 Kings chapter 20. God reveals himself to us in three primary ways. That is through events, through words, and through persons. In the narrative before us today, we find the coupling of event and prophetic word to reveal that God is sovereign over every inch of reality. In a memorable narrative, and believe me, it's dreadful to cut a narrative like this in half, which I'm going to do today. But by way of outline, I'll simply mark the various scene changes that we find in the first 30 verses of 1 Kings chapter 20. Scene 1 is a Syrian coalition that assaults Samaria and demands plunder. Notice verse 1 of chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria. Better reading might be he besieged Samaria. Same idea, but he fought against it there. Now, Damascus was the capital city of the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad. Up there, as you can squint to see it in the top right corner. Damascus, Ben-Hadad, coming down south to Samaria... And the capital city here of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel, to the south-southwest of Damascus. So Syria and Israel were generally bitter enemies. On occasion, Ben-Hadad joins forces with Ahab, the countries coming together because there's a, a greater enemy, such as Assyria, to their uh, north and east particularly. But... On this occasion, they're not together, they're at one another's gate as enemies. Ben-Hadad joins forces with 32 kings, we see here in verse 1. Think of small city-states, about the footprint of our property here, with walls around and certainly territory around for farming and the like, but just small kings. These are kings with a small K. Uh, these over little city-states, and they are there coming together with Ben-Hadad, and they close in, as I said, they besiege Samaria, Samaria being the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, under Ahab. So the picture that we should see here is uh, not soldiers of Ben-Hadad with their backs against the wall, uh, just resting while people are inside, but surrounding to some degree the city of Samaria, besieging it and just waiting, waiting for them to give in, give up, uh, something to happen. They're not able to smash through the walls, but they are able to control what takes, what leaves and comes in. And so laying siege to this capital city No one is coming in or out, generally speaking. Food is very hard to get into the city. I would notice here in verse 1, this phrase that they went up. 
Uh, That's often a throwaway phrase, but not so much here. It becomes rather important in the narrative. the, The Syrian troops ascended from the plains to the north up to Samaria. You have to, again, squint a little bit at this, but you can see that central hill country, that uh, notable ridge there at the center of Israel. So coming from the northeast off to the top right corner of this map, coming down south that way, Ben-Hadad and his troops enter onto this spine on the top of this mountain ridge. There's one road through there and go all the way down to Samaria. In fact, Jerusalem's on that same ridge. And why is that? Why is Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, why are they in this place? This is a really tough place to bring an army. You don't have a whole lot of exit points. There's one road in and one road out, essentially, simplified, but that's essentially the case. It's just not easy to get in and it's not easy to escape And it also gives a lot of haunts for the defensive armies to come down upon your invading army. And so that's that's why these two capitals are there in that central hill country. Well, Ben-Hadad has taken the risk. And he's come down south and is at the gates of Samaria besieging the city. Verse 2. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are mine. Ahab effectively surrenders, seeing that Ben-Hadad, conceding Ben-Hadad's terms. Those terms were probably somewhat vague and left to Ahab to monitor. It's kind of this sort of exchange, this kind of understand. I get all your gold, silver, and all the wives and children that, you, that I can have. But it, it, Ahab will sort of monitor this and send something. And if the gift appeases Ben-Hadad, he'll go home. That's the, uh, the unstated idea. But Ahab again assesses his situation and concludes this is the best course of action. So verse 4, his concession. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So it seems that Ben-Hadad maybe is a little surprised by how easily Ahab concedes to these terms. And Ben-Hadad seems then to be thinking, maybe he's more vulnerable and frightened than I thought. So he sends more messengers back into the city of Samaria to update the terms of surrender. Verse 5. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you, and take it away. Whatever you find of value, we're not going to leave this in your hands to appease us on your terms in any way, shape, or form. We're going to come in and take whatever you value because we're going to value it. And we're going to take it home. He intends not only to enrich himself, but to bring Ahab to a place of utter humiliation. The scene shifts now. 
King Ahab draws the line and incites a battle. Verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, for my silver, my gold. I didn't refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So Ahab knows that Ben-Hadad's army can crush Israel's army, but there is a certain line one must draw. And his counselors say, this is that place. If there were five burly gang members, all with knives in their hands, surrounded me and Beth and said, give us your money. I'd probably assess the situation and just knowing Dan, I would have to think about it. <laughs> like, ugh, and knowing Beth, maybe we'd think about it even longer, actually, and say, yeah, you're not doing that to us. But I think wisdom would kick in there somewhere as we look at these five guys and they start stepping forward there, their knives, and we say, okay. But if they said to me, we're going to take your wife... I don't assess them any differently. There's still five guys with a knife that could, any one of them could beat me up, let alone the five of them. But I would have to say what? No, here I draw the line. Here I die. That's where Ahab's at. Really? This, we got to die here. We've got to draw the line at this place. We can't have them coming in and simply taking absolutely everything that we have and doing whatever they want. We have no choice but to go down fighting here. Verse 9, So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Ben-Hadad remains entirely full of himself, and his wounded pride responds I will end you. I gave you a choice, and now I'm going to reduce you and your city to nothing. In verse 11, we encounter one of the greatest responses in military history. Verse 11, And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. He's standing there before the gang members and saying, Bring it on. He pokes Ben-Hadad right in the eye with that statement. What's he saying? Yeah, you haven't won yet. Save your celebration for after an actual victory. And that angers Ben-Hadad beyond what we could probably understand. Verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, that is the, the makeshift tents out of foliage, out of limbs and branches and leaves, He said to his men, take your positions, and they took their positions against the city of Samaria. So Ben-Hadad, readying his troops for attack, we encounter what is now a most unexpected scene change. 
And working toward this third scene change, let me set it up here by reminding us of three things. First of all, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30 says this, Ahab son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He broke covenant with God as Israel's theocratic head. We're talking about one evil man that has positioned himself for nothing but the judgment of God. That's what we understand in the book of Kings to this place. Secondly, Ahab witnessed God's power and authority in the fireball that ate up Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Yet Ahab refused to repent and lead the nation back to God. But thirdly, remember from chapter 19, on Mount Sinai, God decreed the violent elimination of Ahab's lineage by the aggression of Jehu. So by every evidence in the book of 1 Kings, we expect God to come down hard on Ahab. This is it for this godless king. He's now poked Ben-Hadad in the eye, and Ben-Hadad is going to come and crush Ahab. We just see it coming. God has, in sense, prophesied it. This is something we learn again and again and again in Scripture, and maybe particularly in the Old Testament. God's love just keeps coming. It is grace upon grace upon grace as he continues to reach out to his sinful nation. And the scene changed and utterly unexpected. A prophet declares Israel's victory. And Ahab rallies his troops. Verse 13. Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold a prophet. This is one of God's prophets that Elijah claimed did not exist. But as God revealed in 1918, this prophet who steps on the scene unnamed and out of nowhere speaks for God as representative of that remnant. And he comes with the message, remembering again the role of a prophet, thus says the Lord, this is what God has declared. This is the truth of God to you. Now, what do you think hits in Ahab's brain right at that point? Thus says the Lord. He's like, here it comes. What is that? It's going to be another drought? Is this another, I got to go to Carmel and see that God is really who he, what? Right in that moment, he's expecting nothing good, I am certain. But what does God say? You're going to win this battle. Now, Ahab has himself assessed the odds, has he not? He's, he's given concessions to Ben-Hadad, knowing that his army is superior. In verse 4, he's laid down like a frightened kitten in one sense until he scratched back. But he's fully aware that he has no chance. But God says of this battle, mine. Ahab, unlike Baal, I am here. And I will win this battle and you will see again as you did on Mount Carmel that I am sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. 
And Ahab submissively seeks then the prophet's further counsel from God. He's got no answers here militarily. And so he talks to a prophet about how to proceed. Verse 14, Ahab said, by whom? That is, you shall know that I am the Lord because I will give this battle into your hand. And he says, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord. That is, the prophet responds. This is what the Lord directs you. By the servants of the governors of the districts. We don't know precisely what that means, but we know there's 232 of them. And he just chooses those individuals are going to lead the troops. It could be that they're just not ready militarily and God gives him this idea and then he says, who shall begin the battle? Hebrew word, not more than just starting it, but really overseeing it. Who's going to join the battle? Who's going to begin this thing and bring it to its end? And he answered you. Again, a mercy. Not what... Ahab deserved. He didn't deserve this honor. He didn't deserve to fight for God. But then, verse 15, he mustered the servants of the governors and the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Just know this, not a very big number. Not the number you want to amass, but as a besieged city, he's done pretty well to bring 7,000 sort of like soldiers here together to fight Ben-Hadad's masses. Verse 16, another scene change. Ahab attacks the Syrian coalition and Israel prevails. Verse 16, And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. Now, Middle Eastern armies did not fight at midday due to the extreme heat. At midday, everyone took rest and refreshment, so Ben-Hadad is not doing something unusual here by drinking in the middle of the day. There's all kinds of things made out of this. He's just doing what a king would do at at that point because nobody attacks another army in the middle of the day. That's when everybody takes a nap. It's too hot. And remember, Israel is under siege. Besieged cities don't send out attackers. So he's got an inferior army penned in as he prepares for battle. He's not doing anything unusual here in verse 16. Verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. If they've you know, come out to insult me again, take them alive. I want to know what they have to say. He's assuming that these are just messengers. He's not assessing the situation because this isn't when armies fight. Do you remember the story of General George Washington's decisive victory at Trenton, New Jersey. Crossing the Delaware River on Christmas evening. Who does that? The Hessian troops defending Trenton for Britain that night were drunk. It's Christmas. But not only that, there was a wicked northeast wind that was bearing down upon them and no human soul would be out in that kind of wind. 
right at that 29 to 32 degree mark. It was bitterly cold, terribly difficult circumstances, and the Hessian mercenaries concluded no one in their right mind would ever move troops at this time. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, that, the way that hits us, you don't move troops starting at 11 p.m. on Christmas night in a, in a terrible storm is in a sense how this hits Ben-Hadad. There's no army going to attack us in the middle of the day in the heat. So this scene is less dramatic, but it involves the same basic calculus. Who in their right mind would do this? But the inebriated Ben-Hadad did not realize that it was not just Ahab that he was fighting, but it was the Lord of hosts. So verse 19, so they went out of the city and the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad king of Syria escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. To everyone's shock. The once arrogant king fled the field on horseback. His army was slaughtered. His horse and chariot brigade was decimated. It was a total defeat. Why? Because the Lord of hosts said of this battle, mine. Against all expectation from every angle. This battle is mine. God declared the outcome of the battle before it happened in order to reveal to Israel his sovereignty over every square inch. And what was the purpose of it? That you shall know that I am the Lord. That was the purpose then, and that is the purpose today. Verse 22, another shift in scene The prophet warns of Syria's return and the armies prepare. Verse 22, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the the king of Syria will come up against you. So a prophetic warning in Ahab's court. Ahab may well have thought Syria was finished, But I think it might be just as possible that Ahab would have anticipated this very thing. But that's the point. The Lord of hosts has now now assumed high command of this operation. So Ahab obediently prepares for the spring. We note then, in a different direction, deliberations in Ben-Hadad's court at verse 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, up there in the hill country. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. There will be an emphasis on the plain also down there in verse 25. So this is a key thought. It's connected to what? The pagan gods were seen as having jurisdictions. There are certain spaces where they belonged and where they could operate. In certain places they did not. 
Ben-Hadad's war council puts God in that same tiny box. God can defend the hills. That's why Samaria and Jerusalem are there. But get them down on the plain and those gods will stay right where they belong and the battle will be ours. So Ben-Hadad's war council encourages him to ascend the hill country to fight Samaria will be another loss. But if we engage on the plain, God won't be there and we will prevail. And I just say by analysis, this was the dumbest war council in history. All the time, people curse God. All the time, people declare that He does not exist. They dishonor His name. They take His name in vain. They reject His laws. They despise His presence. All around us, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, your schoolmates, we see it all the time, and God does what? Nothing. In His patience, in His kindness, He does not act so often, but continues to extend His grace. And yet if there is anything that is likely to excite God's wrath, it is to say that there is a square inch over which he does not reign. What could possibly incite God to come to the aid of wicked King Ahab? Well, this is about it. Tell Yahweh that there is a square inch of his universe that he does not rule and you better duck because the lesson is going to be painful. So during the winter months, Ben-Hadad fires the coalition of kings, the guys that are in there probably mostly because of birth, and he gets better generals, better leaders of his army, and he builds everything back up to this massive army that is well-equipped, and this time they will defeat Israel. So remove the king's from their posts, put commanders in their places, verse 25, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, then we will fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Verse 26, Israel defeats Syria again, and God again reveals his glory to Israel in his mercy to her. Verse 26, In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country, filled this plain. Now, think about the earlier battle. Let's compare them for a moment. And hang in there. We'll bring this around to us in in right order. But think of what the first battle entailed. In the hill country, that's supposedly to Israel's advantage, and it is on some level. It's a surprise attack. Ben-Hadad did not see this day coming, this noonday attack. And Syria was led by kings who ruled by birth, not necessarily by military prowess. This second battle, Ben-Hadad has a whole different deal. He situates everything opposite. It's on the plain. It's not a surprise attack. 
There's two little flocks of goats like Israel's army before this massive herd of people that's, that's tenting there and they're seeing each other. So there's no surprise. And Ben-Hadad's army is improved. The only similarity with the earlier battle is that Israel is outnumbered. Enter again a prophet of God. Verse 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We see the repetition with these two prophetic statements. Thus says the Lord, and you, plural, shall know that I am the Lord. This is the point of the battle. Verse 29, And they encamped opposite one another seven days. So again, not a surprise attack. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, here at Aphek on the plain. The rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left dead. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. The army is gone. The king is hiding for his life. And God has said, mine. Here I will show again, Ahab in Israel, my power. Yet again... Ben-Hadad learning by bitter experience that God is sovereign over all. Ahab and Israel learning again by victorious privilege that God is sovereign over all. And the question that remains is, will Ahab repent? By God's grace, we look at that at another day. But I want to come back particularly to verse 23, and we'll camp on this no pun intended, for a short period of time. Not in our booths, but in our nice our place here. Let's think of this for a moment. In these battle events, God reveals in a dramatic way that He reigns sovereignly as Lord of heaven and earth. We see that from a distance. And we might rightly respond with rejoicing that we serve such a great and awesome God who can do as he pleases and rules every inch of the universe. And we may end with that saying, yeah, Ahab, get the picture, buddy. What is wrong with you? And we may end this and say, how dumb were the Syrians to put that in God's face and say, you aren't here. But I think far more properly, we must recognize that in our sin and in our unfaithfulness, we too declare places where God is not. We do it all the time. Where His reach does not extend. We do this, on the one hand, in our sinful choices. As I said earlier, we say of some inch, some square inch of mind or body, mine. I will say what I want to say because I'm sovereign over my tongue in that moment. 
I will look at what I know God does not want me to see because this little space in the universe is mine. I will not love that unlovely person. I will not seek reconciliation because I am Lord here. God is not sovereign over my children and my possessions. They are mine. Stay out, Lord. On the other hand, in the area of faith, we determine that God is not sovereign over certain places. Certain spaces where He's not there. He is not in the space of my disease. Over my illness, He has no jurisdiction. He's just not there. In the space of my loneliness or loss, He is not there. On the wide plain of my marriage, Jesus is not Lord there. On the plane of my child's rebellion, he's not Lord there. Where is that space in your heart? Where is that same theme that the Aramean counselors expressed? Where you, in some sense like them, say, not here of God. In the face of those areas, know this believer. Know this follower of Jesus Christ. Let's take this with us today and leave this place knowing together Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of this universe. He is sovereign over every event in history. He is ever-present Lord in every trial, in every type of suffering that you will ever encounter in this world. He is there in all of His authority. He does not act as we demand. He does not act often as we think He should. He is not beholden to us. He knows infinitely more than we know. But He is always there. He will never leave us or forsake us in any small square inch of this universe ever. One way we know this is 1 Kings chapter 20. But the ultimate demonstration of this truth is Jesus standing on the battlefield, staring down death itself in our defense and saying on that battlefield, Mine. You are mine, death. For the redemption of my people, I have conquered you forever. In His resurrection power, He stood there in our place and He won that battle forever then to us in all of our sin by the payment of his life 
in place of ours, he says as Lord and Savior of his people, you are mine. And there's not a moment of time where he sleeps. There's not a moment of time where he forgets. He is there as Lord over every moment and every square inch of our existence. Where do you elbow him out? In your sin, where do you say, mine? Where do you rule him out? In your faithlessness by saying, he's not here. Let us know that in the fight against sin, the lordship of Christ in every place and moment, every square inch of our lives, he is Lord. That is key. And in every act of faithlessness, may we know that he will never leave us or forsake us.